Beyond the Collabo Babble is now in session. When I came to write my book in the realm of hungry ghosts, Ghosts and Conjures with Addiction, this is my book on addiction, I wasn't setting up to write a book about addiction in general. I was just setting up to write a book describing the experiences, life experiences, and present lives of my clients. I thought that would have made an interesting book. What astonished me is that virtually nobody, in fact nobody, had written a book that showed the relationship between early trauma, brain development, the brain physiology of addiction, and the early and present life experiences of addicted people. It had not been done. Beyond the Collab of Babel, meet the people behind the studies, programs, projects, and initiatives. Beyond the Collab of Babel, keeping you motivated and focused through the challenges. Beyond the Collab of Babel, sparking innovation, improvement, and reform. Beyond the Collab of Babel, listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Welcome to Beyond the Collab of Babel podcast committed to introducing and sharing stories of collaboration in the Colorado courts that are leading to systems improvement and systems reform. Through the sharing of information and knowledge during this podcast, you will meet the people and approaches that will help you take action. The star of today's podcast is Dr. Gabor Mate. Dr. Mate is a renowned addiction expert who calls for compassionate approach towards addiction in ourselves and others. Dr. Mate believes that the source of addiction is not to be found in the genes, but in early childhood environment. In the realm of Hungry Ghost, his most recent best-selling book, draws on cutting-edge science and real-life stories to show that all addictions originate in trauma and emotional loss. I am your Collabo Babble host, Bill Delisio, Family Law Program Manager at the Colorado State Court Administrator's Office, Court Services Division. Today we are recording at the 2019 Colorado Convening on Children, Youth, and Families, where Dr. Mate is speaking at multiple workshops. Dr. Mate, good afternoon. Thank you, Bill. Nice to be here. Thank you for, first of all, just thank you for coming to Colorado to speak to our group of attorneys, judges, social workers, and the best practice court teams and the family treatment drug court teams. So I just really want to extend the thanks for that. And also thank you for coming to, to record this short podcast with me so that I can share with the audience in the Colorado Courts and Probation who undoubtedly are dealing with people who have emotional pain and trauma um, and weren't able to be here today. Mm-hmm. So the first question I ask is, what does Beyond the Collab of Apple mean to you? Well, first of all, it makes me want to laugh. <laughs> um, but I think probably that was the intent. Um, but behind every joke, there's also some truth. So there are certain stock phrases these days about mission statements and evidence-based practice and trauma-informed practice and collaborative practice. Often it is babble. And sometimes I wish these phrases would be made illegal because if you couldn't talk about them, maybe we'd actually have to do them. But so that can be reality in some places, but too often they're not. Too often trauma-informed is trauma-uninformed. Too often evidence-based is not actually looking at a lot of the evidence and, uh, and so on. So um, it's funny, and at the same time, it points to a problem. Could you just share with the audience uh, the story of you becoming a doctor and then sort of what shifted your belief that addiction is a result of early childhood trauma? I, I, I was always interested in systemic things. I always wanted to see the, the, the connections between things. So I, I'm, I'm a systems thinker, really. I've been like that all my life. I want to look at the larger picture. And that's the attitude I took to medical practice as well. And uh, you can't be in family practice and get to know families, multi-generational families and family histories, and then seeing 
psychological, emotional, physical problems arise, addiction arise, mental illness arise, and not see the connections. And uh, at least you can't if your eyes are open. Unfortunately, training of physicians does not help them to open their eyes, but rather to close them. Because the medical mind, not medical evidence, but medical practice, separates the mind from the body, separates the individual from the environment. It does not look at the social determinants of why people behave the way they do. It just looks at individual biology for the most part. And so, but I was never minded that way, so I, I did see these connections. And of course, this is where evidence-based stuff comes in, because in medicine, we keep talking about evidence-based practice. Well, we don't, we don't look at all the evidence that shows how things are all connected, that people are biopsychosocial creatures. You can't separate their biology from their emotions and their social relationships. Um, we just doggedly and determinedly ignore that evidence. Whereas it's there, and it's not even controversial when you look at it. So you're saying that in addition to there being evidence that's not being looked at, there is some dogma that drives the way people look at problems so they're not curious enough to look at some of these mysteries. But you're saying they're not mysteries if you look a little further. Then addiction is not a mystery. Mental illness is not a mystery. Uh, if you actually look at the evidence, if you look at the actual evidence. And um, it's... So when people have an ideology... Ideology includes certain ideas, but it also automatically excludes certain ideas. And so ideology is, and if the more committed you are to ideology, the more blind you're going to be. And I don't care what your ideology is, whether it's a religious one or a political one or a social one or a medical one or, you know. And, and so there's ideological blinders. And also, of course, when it comes to the practice of law, I imagine, certainly when it comes to the practice of medicine, when you've invested your whole career in a certain way of looking at things, you're going to be rather threatened if somebody comes along and says, hey, you know what, maybe the way we've been looking at it doesn't accurately describe what's going on. Now you'd have to actually say, you know what, I haven't known all along, and I have to really relearn. And that's daunting for a lot of people. So when you were in medical school, I mean, you were kind of questioning some of the dogma or some of the things that you were learning or maybe wondering why we weren't learning more about the human brain or more about trauma? When I was in medical school, I didn't wonder about those things. I was too busy hunkering down and trying to get through the courses and uh, and pass and to please my superiors. That's what I was trying to do. But once I was in practice, my own natural tendencies uh, showed up. Once I jumped through the hoops, um, and a lot of doctors actually find that, as I imagine a lot of people in the legal profession, is that once they're out there in the real world, they have to adjust their assumptions and they have to start asking different questions. So I would like if you could just give the audience a little, I guess, background in where you were practicing in Vancouver. You mentioned earlier this morning it's one of the per square mile the most use of drugs, inhaling, injecting, smoking um, in North America. Yeah. Could you just give a little background of like where your practice with people that were suffering with addiction started? Sure. So first of all, I was in family practice. I had a very regular family practice. I had people of all ages. I delivered babies. I also was a palliative care physician, looked after the dying. And amongst my patients, there were some addicted clients. So I did that for 20 years. But then for the last 12 years of my medical uh, career, I went to the downtown east side of Vancouver. And the downtown east side, as you say, is North America's most concentrated area of drug use. It's an area blighted by suffering, poverty, homelessness, heavy, heavy uh, 
drug addiction, uh, much mental illness, and so on. And there's reasons why it developed that way, but it's shocking to people who visit that area for the first time, even now. Even as the area is getting gentrified, it's still shocking for people to see what they see. And so that's where I worked at a clinic for 10 years. And then for two years, I was the physician at a clinic associated with Insight, which is North America's first and for a long time only supervised injection site, where people actually were permitted to bring their drugs and inject them under supervision, give them clean needles, sterile water, tourniquets, and if they overdose, they were resuscitated. So I worked there for two years. So uh, what did you learn while you worked there? I mean, what was the sort of... You, you went, I, th- I imagine you went there and you already had some of these thoughts that were different than what most people looked at, how they looked at drug addiction, and you were probably starting to form some of your hypothesis around yeah. early high childhood trauma, but... Well, so, um, yes, that, that, that's all true, because as I began to understand how much the brain itself is affected by our childhood experiences and what implications that has for adult health, uh, even outside the realm of addiction, I, be, I was aware of the implications of childhood experience on health in general. My own personal experience had to come into this because I, I was in mid-40s and very successful and very depressed and very um, frustrated in my life with all kinds of personal issues. So I had to do my own therapeutic work. And so what I witnessed in my patient population and what I had to work through in myself all pointed to the decisive impact of childhood experiences. Then I go to work in the downtown east side with addictions, and everybody down there was heavily traumatized. The women had all been sexually abused and so on. When I came to write my book, In the Realm of Funky Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, this is my book on addiction, I wasn't setting up to write a book about addiction in general. I was just setting up to write a book describing the experiences life experiences and present lives of my clients. I thought that would have made an interesting book. What astonished is that virtually nobody, in fact nobody, had written a book that showed the relationship between early trauma, brain development, the brain physiology of addiction, and the early and present life experiences of addicted people. It had not been done. Some of the ideas had been presented here and there in some books, and it was all in the medical literature in terms of the articles that are in the journal pieces that had been published and the studies that had been performed, but it had not been brought together. So I ended up writing a much bigger book than I had planned, and it included not just the stories of these clients, but a general overview of addiction in general, overall, and, and, and not just drug addiction, but also the work addiction of, or the shopping addiction of somebody like myself, or the gambling or the sexaholism and other addictions of other people. So it, was, it became a much larger project than I'd imagined. Where'd the phrase hungry ghost come from? What made you want to choose that, that phrase? Hungry ghost is a Buddhist term, um, and it refers to a realm of existence where the creatures have large empty bellies, tiny narrow necks, small mouths so they can never fill themselves. So they keep haunting their worlds with this empty, trying to fulfill that vast gnawing void inside from the outside, which can never be done. So that's the realm of funky ghosts. So I, I thought it was an apt analogy for the, the addiction. Um, 
I, I was listening to Johan Hari, and he mentioned yeah. something that you'd said to him, and it was uh, he's the author of a book called Lost Connections, Uncovering right. the Real Causes of Depression. Or he said that you told him this: yeah. if inflicting pain stopped addiction, there wouldn't be a single addict left. Yeah. And I, I was reflecting on this quote, thinking of the spectrum of people who appear in courts across Colorado yeah. every day, from individuals who've committed crimes and they're in a drug court, perhaps, and they've been convic- convicted all the way through people who are going through family separation in a juvenile court or a divorce setting. And often, right, judicial officers, court staff, probation officers, um, they're observing non-compliant behavior. They're, they're, they're seeing people do things that doesn't make sense. They want the children back, but they're doing something that doesn't square up with that. Can you just talk a little bit about how that might play into what we see every day in the courts and the probation in Colorado? Sure. Well, forget your client population for a minute and just look at myself. So here I am in my mid-40s again, successful in every external way, and I go to serious behavior addiction. And it's creating havoc in my life. It's alienating my marriage. It's creating problems in my marriage. It's even causing me to ignore my medical duties. Do I stop doing it? No. You didn't. No, I, I didn't. Yeah. And so... All the more when somebody's hooked on drugs, which is more powerful than my behavior addiction, mind you, I don't make too much of a separation between the two, but the drugs themselves change the brain and, 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 and they create a cycle of yearning, use, and then more yearning. So when we ask people, why aren't you behaving rationally? It's very simple. The rational decision-making happens more on the left side of the brain, in the frontal, left frontal cortex. But the emotional behavior is driven more by the right side of the brain, which develops first. And um, when impulse regulation doesn't develop, then you end up doing things that you shouldn't. Now, these are developmental attributes. So the question we have to ask is, what happened to my right brain when it was developing, and what happened to the right brain of these clients? Because when the right brain takes over, and these lower brain centers take over, the rational left brain goes offline. It just doesn't come into it. Mm-hmm. And this is even when I should know better. In fact, intellectually, I do know better. So you might even sit through a couple-hour class on parenting after divorce, and they'll give yeah. you all the statistics and all yeah. the data, but you're saying... That part of the brain isn't what's picking up right now. What I need is my emotional part of my brain to, 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 to connect. Somebody needs to have some compassion for that and, and, and yeah, sort of... Somebody needs, somebody needs to work with that part of my brain okay. to help it develop so that um, I don't just get triggered and act in a crazy way, but actually I allow my rational circuits, or at least they are strong enough to, to, to assert some dominance. Okay. And the problem is that a lot of these people they see in the courts, their rational brains don't exert dominance, and then they're being punished for things that are not that are not actually consciously choosing. I mean, they never chose to be traumatized in the first place. Mm-hmm. They never chose that their brains wouldn't develop properly in the first place. And now they're being punished for having been traumatized. Really, that's what it comes down to. Okay. Now, now that's the first point. Now, the second point is okay. they commit crime. Why do they commit crime? I mean, smoking is a terrible habit. It'll kill you. It's very addictive. But nobody commits crimes to get cigarettes. Why? Because they can buy it in the corner store. When alcohol was illegal, people committed crimes to market it and so on. So they, 
illegality itself is what drives the crime. Now, there are some drugs that makes you more violent and more aggressive. Crystal meth can certainly make you more aggressive. Just so can dexedrine, which is what they gave me for my ADHD. Mm. I, was, I became very aggressive. You know, oh, wow. or, you know, that's a whole other story. Alcohol can make you aggressive because it can disinhibit your aggression. Heroin does not make you aggressive. If anything, it makes you peaceful. What makes you aggressive is when you're going through withdrawal and there's no source. Because it's illegal and you can't go to a clinic and be supervised and get heroin under injection and you don't have suboxone and you don't have methadone, then you commit a crime to get your um, opiate as a way of stopping this terrible withdrawal process. So it's not the drugs for the most part themselves that create the, the crime, it's the criminalization that creates the crime. And uh, I'm not here advocating for legalization in the sense of corner store sales, like say marijuana here in Colorado. I'm not, I'm not advocating that for the heavier drugs, but there's measures in between criminalization and legalization that could actually, like decriminalization for personal use would be one such measure. And also medical assisted treatment. I think um, there are people who have more or less education on the topic, but what's your position when you're talking about something like methadone or suboxone, something that people need to use to, to avoid the criminal behavior, but they're still using drugs. And some of us still, we'll still hear people say abstinence is the only real way. What do you well, say about that? Well, I mean, we, we see how successful our policies have been when we look at the fact that in North America, and, and in the U.S. specifically, as I mentioned this morning, every three weeks you have as many people dying of overdoses as died in 9-11. Every three weeks you got a 9-11 in this country. It's fat. When the first time I heard you say that, I couldn't believe it, but when I thought about it, you were right on the money. Yeah. You, add up, you add up the numbers and you divide it. I didn't say it. Former President Obama said it. Oh, okay. Well, I heard you say it first on <laughs> I, Tim Ferriss' podcast. I, I did say it before he said it. Okay. But, but that's because there's been studies about it. Okay, you know? yeah. And um, it's true. So abstinence is great for some people if they can do it. But there's no one size fits all. For some people, you need uh, maintenance. Some people just can't get off their opiates. Just can't do it. Too much pain, too much withdrawal. Their trauma hasn't been dealt with. They need the soothing of the emotional pain and the relaxation and even the sense of connection that the opiates offer. But why not give them suboxone, which will not make them high, but it'll stop them from going through withdrawal. Why not give them methadone? Suboxone is a better drug from that point of view than methadone is, but why not give them that? Mm -hmm. And perhaps even more controversially, why not give them heroin if they need that? I don't mean to take home and to sell in the streets. I mean to inject in clinics. And when that's done, it's been done in Switzerland, in Germany. It was done a lot in the UK. It's been done in the clinics, one clinic in Vancouver. We know what the results are. Much less crime, much less disease, much better family relationships, much more employability, much more social engagement. Why not? Switzerland's one area where I think I've heard that when the when the people that do enter the hospital or this this place where they can use the heroin, that over the course of a year, most people on their own decide not to use the heroin. They 
they get cleaned up, they find a job, they engage mm-hmm. with their family. Mm-hmm. They actually get better just because they're being supported with other health services and other home housing services. And it's not just the drugs, right? They, they, they surround them with the services they need to make their lives better. Well, that's the whole point. When we talk about harm reduction, um, there's the physical aspects of harm reduction, which is you're reducing the harm. So if you give somebody a clean needle, that's reducing, eliminating the chance of getting HIV as opposed to people sharing needles or hepatitis C. When you give them sterile water to inject with, instead of puddle water from the back alley, you're reducing the chance of a brain abscess. When you give them an alcohol swab to clean their skin, you give them a tourniquet to find a vein with, instead of punching themselves all over the place, you're reducing the burden of disease, and you save money, you save the healthcare system, oodles of money. When you resuscitate them, of course. Sometimes people say, why should we resuscitate people who use drugs? Well, why should we resuscitate somebody who smokes and has a heart attack? Yeah. I mean, that's fine. Let's not resuscitate anybody who overdoses. But then also, let's not resuscitate anybody who gets uh, diabetic coma because they ate too much sugar. Mm. Let's not resuscitate anybody who smoked and got heart disease. And let's not give them heart transplants or bypass surgery. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's the logic here? Yeah. Okay. But anyway. So that's one aspect of it, the physical support. But the big aspect of it is you're actually accepting for where they're at, which is they've never experienced in their whole lives. Since children, they've been rejected, implicitly or explicitly, in a family home, in a school system, in a juvenile court system, in the adult court system. They've said nothing but harsh treatment, rejection, and so on. So when you actually treat them like human beings and you say, okay, you need to use right now, how can we help you use more safely? And let's also work on the issues that made you use in the first place. And let's support your health. Well, that has a trauma healing effect. Of course, they'll be more likely to want to get off their drugs and, 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 and engage in genuine social contact. So I had the pleasure of being part of a family treatment drug court, being uh, part of starting it and getting to work in it for a year. And we used to hold that docket every Thursday afternoon. And every professional that was assigned to that specialized program looked mm. forward to it. Mm. Uh, we, re- we really liked it. And the judge I worked with and I, we used to say it was one of the most humanizing things we did in our work because we'd see somebody come in was sick and a year later they would stand up bright eyed yeah. and yeah. skin clear and speaking in front of a room full of people. Yes. And it felt like we built a little community, a little people started to trust each other. And you talk about how can you talked about it today? People asked, what can we do? And, and you talked about being compassionate and meeting people where they are. Can you just talk a little bit about that for the folks who are going to be listening, who are in those specialized programs? They might know that feeling, but how can people who maybe aren't in a specialized program also replicate some of those compassionate inquiries and showing that they really care into their work? Well, my uh, contention is is that people actually want to be compassionate. That, that's what we want as human beings. We feel so much better when we're human, uh, human and humane with one another than when we're hostile or controlling. We just feel better inside. That could, that's part of our nature. Human nature is not hostile and aggressive. Okay. It's the opposite. And so somebody can't be that way when instead of their human compassion opening up, it's the judgment or hostility or fear that opens up. They can ask themselves, what's happening with me here? 
So rather than looking at the client, ask yourself, well, what's happening inside you right now? I mean, I, was, I had those days like that. I was very harsh and judgmental with my clients, even though I know better. But then I had to look at myself in those days. What's going on for me right now? So we have to look at as much as ourselves and say, well, what's blocking my human compassion right now? So that's, I think that's a micro level. You said at the beginning you like yeah. the macro level. So just from your perspective, fields of medicine, fields of medicine, public health, public education, subject, uh, substance use treatment, psychology, child welfare, all these professionals that are interacting with courts, as courts who rely on some of these folks to make recommendations, can we really have a high confidence that they're getting the kind of training in addiction and emotional pain that folks are, are, are you, you trauma? Can have, you can have absolute confidence that they're not getting the right training. The average medical student does not hear the word trauma in all their years of education. They really don't hear the word. Not that they don't get a lecture on it. They should have a whole year on it. But they don't even hear the word. You ask the average law student, have you heard the word trauma in your courses? No. The average educator? No. So yeah, you can have pretty good confidence that in their formal training, they didn't get it. But some people don't get it after their formal training. They go to workshops, they read books, they become aware of the trauma studies, the broadly done and broadly published and not in the least controversial studies like the adverse childhood experiences studies. So we are seeing a very welcome movement in that direction, but we're not seeing that movement for the most part in the institutions of education yet, where people are actually trained. I, I, I'm not seeing it. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there's some openings, but it's still, we're still focusing more on the behaviors um, on one hand, or on the, just the biology on the other. And we're not looking at the fact that the biology and the behaviors actually reflect people's experiences. I know you got a tight schedule today, so I want to start wrapping this up. And I, once again, thank you so much. But do you have three takeaways for taking action for this audience for this episode? Or maybe you have one big takeaway that you want to leave. You choose. Three. Uh, one, one is, um, if this makes sense to you, steep yourself in the literature so you really understand it from the inside. So read my book. Read Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. Read uh, Peter Levine's work on trauma. Waking the Tiger in an Unspoken Voice. So much literature these days on this. Um, number one, so, 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 so immerse yourself in, in understanding. Secondly, work on yourself. See what promotes in you humanity and connection and um, compassion and what inhibits it. And so look at that. And then thirdly, look to see what you can do in the context of a system that on the whole doesn't even understand this perspective, let alone support it, how you can still be a subversive in the system. Subversive in the sense that um, you work in the system without taking on its value. I just want also, if you would let the audience know, what's the best way to look at some of your lectures and some of your other materials that might be out there on the internet? Sure. So my website is Dr. Gabor Mate, G-A-B-O-R-M-A-T-E. Lots of... But you can also just go to YouTube and put my name in and there'll be several dozen lectures will come up and there's no cost to any of that. There's also the four books that I've written. People can, if they want, go on my mailing list to find out about new talks or new, the, the new books I'm working on right now. Okay. Um, so through my website or just going on YouTube in general. Okay, well, I like to end, but the, let my audience get to know you a little bit. I have a couple questions. Did anything surprise you about today's podcast? It delighted me to be speaking with somebody who clearly gets it, 
So it, it helps to reduce my overall pessimism about the system. And, and, you know, and the people coming up to me saying, you know, thank you, so great to hear this articulated. We see it the same way. So I, I, I'm not surprised anymore, but I'm very delighted. Good, good. Yeah. What's your favorite thing or place in Colorado? You know, I haven't been in Colorado enough to, to know. And usually when I've come here, I've come here in and out on speaking engagements, so I, I haven't really had spent time yet. But um, I've been to Boulder, beautiful place. Denver's a beautiful place. In fact, Colorado is a beautiful place. Uh, so, I, but I can't. I, I wish I could come back here uh, for a holiday. For a holiday and just be here mm-hmm. and not speak to anybody, just enjoy the place. Okay. <laughs> well, we really did enjoy your speech, and I'm glad to hear that you got that kind of feedback because I do yeah. think that you are kind of pushing the envelope but hopefully people are starting to see it makes sense it aligns with what they're seeing in real life and you have some of the science behind it we're somewhere in the world you dream of, of visiting one day you know it's in the nature of my uh, life these days that i get to go all over the place i mean in the, in the last year i've been to turkey romania hungary ireland norway the united states very often canada uk i'd love sometime to go to india i'd love to sometimes go to asia um there's too much in this world to see but uh and i and i also know i could go do good work in these places and i've been invited i just haven't had the time to accept so my main commitment right now is to stay home and write my next two books um the 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 first of which will be um the myth of normal illness and health in an insane culture which is a which is a title that i think probably speaks for itself and then I'm writing a book with one of my sons called Hello Again, A Fresh Start for Adult Children and Their Parents. Oh, that's going to be an interesting yeah. one, too. Yeah, yeah. All right, what is your perfect meal? Uh, the Greek salad that I make for myself. Yeah, with uh, lots of great, uh, you know, salad and kale and... and uh, Some feta cheese? Uh, well, uh, wonderful feta cheese and dousing it with olive oil. That's, I could probably live on that. And nuts, I love nuts. Okay. I love almonds. I carry them with me everywhere I go. I love Indian food. I love all kinds of food. All right, last question. What is something you believed for a long time that you later found to be untrue? That happens every week. <laughs> it, it, it's that uh, I thought I knew something. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Well, we're going to end right there. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode of Beyond the Collab Battle. Listen. Learn, listen, lead, learn, take action, listen, learn, listen, learn, take action, learn, take action, learn, take action.